Amen. Amen. Thank you all for worshiping, and thank you for worshiping from home tonight as well. Genesis 26, Isaac finding his own way in life. As I shared, Abraham, his father, is in heaven with the Lord, and now Isaac has to find his own way. We understand that as children and as parents, that we have to raise our children to find their own way in this life with God. But that's not only a parent-child thing, that's every one of us. It's great that we have friends and that we have fellow Christians and that we have people around us who can support us and help us and encourage us. But at the end of it all, we still all need to also find our own way through life with God. We have to have a personal walk and a personal relationship with God. And so even with a support group around us, we still need to find our own way, you see. And that's what Isaac was learning how to do. Many years had passed since the birth of his two children, Jacob and Esau, by Rebekah. And we come to Genesis 26, and we find a crisis. There was a famine in the land. And notice, subsequent or coming right on the heels of an earlier famine. Sometimes that's the way life is. It's one crisis, one trial, one obstacle, one challenge right after another. You know, it, it would be one thing if you had a crisis or a trial and you were able to get past it and then you didn't have any for a while. And sometimes that happens too. But sometimes in life, there are seasons where it just seems like it's always one thing after another. It's like as soon as one thing happens, then here comes something else. So we can relate. We can understand. It's like, because let's just face it, famines are pretty big deals. People were going hungry. People were starving to death. People didn't have enough food to eat. I can't relate to that in my lifetime. I was raised by parents who could relate to that because both of my parents grew up in the Great Depression. And my parents relayed to me many times where they were hungry and didn't have enough to eat. Well, that's what was happening with Isaac. Isaac had went through one famine with his family, and now here comes another one. And so notice it says, Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, at Gerar. Now, I want to point out something here that hopefully will maybe ease some confusion. If you remember our study of the book of Genesis up to this point, you recognize the name Abimelech, right? My personal belief, is that this is not the same Abimelech that we were introduced to earlier on in Genesis. Abimelech is not just a name, it is a title. It is a title for those in leadership. So I think that this is a different Abimelech than the one we knew previously. 
But what we do learn here, whether you think it's the same or not, is that Isaac, notice, turns to Abimelech in a time of crisis. Who do we turn to in a time of crisis? Who is it in our life that we would turn to in a time of crisis? Are we somebody that others would turn to in a time of crisis? Now, obviously, we all should turn to the Lord. Isaac was still getting there. And that's one of the things that God is going to work with Isaac about in this story, is getting Isaac to see him and to turn to him and to learn to turn to him when he has a crisis, when he has a trial, when he has a challenge in his life. And you and I need to do the same. Sometimes in our life, we'll turn to anything and everybody else, and then God's the last resort. No, no, God should be the first one we turn to in times of crisis and trial and challenge. Then notice verse 2. Here's the first time that the Lord comes to him in the midst of a struggle, and this struggle is one crisis after another. And notice what the Lord does. He appears to Isaac. Why is that significant? Because the word appear in the Hebrew literally means to see. God wants Isaac to see him. God hasn't changed in thousands of years. When you and I are struggling, when you and I are going through crisis, trials, tribulations, God wants us to see him. That's one of the ways that we can be encouraged and strengthened and refreshed even in the midst of trial is seeing God. And that even ties into our worship of God, taking the time to spend time in God's presence and to truly see him. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. He wasn't directing that to people who could physically see him at times. Obviously, he was on earth at that time. He was directing that to even all of his disciples who would long be there following him long after he ascended and went back to heaven. Because even Peter tells us, though we have not physically seen him, we can see him through the eyes of faith. And that's what God wants Isaac to do here. He wants Isaac to see him, not to see the crisis, but to see him first. And again, to view his crisis through the prism of his great God. Then notice, he not only wants Isaac to see him, he wants Isaac to hear him. He speaks to Isaac and he says, do not go down to Egypt, but settle down in the land that I will point out to you. I love those two words, settle down. God's literally telling Isaac, settle down, Isaac, settle down. And really what God is trying to get Isaac to do here is to settle down in him. Again, God wants us to do the same. 
God wants us, no matter what crisis we're going through, even if it's one crisis after another, to learn to settle down in him, you see. And it's also interesting that God clearly says to Isaac at this point, don't go down to Egypt. Why is that significant? Because for many people throughout Bible history, many of the people of God, Egypt was the default. If I have, a tr if I have trouble of any kind, I'm going to Egypt. Now, I will say this. Egypt plays a most interesting and unique part in Bible history, in Bible geography, and even in the plan of God with the people of God, because there are times where Egypt is a refuge for God's people, where God actually directs his people to go to Egypt. In fact, he did that after the birth of his son, Jesus. Whenever Herod was looking to kill Jesus, God sent Mary and Joseph into Egypt for a time. So there is times where Egypt is a refuge, but there are other times, and we know of those, where Egypt is bondage for God's people. So what's the difference? If the place is the same, then what's the difference? Whether God directs us there or not. If he's directing us there, if he's telling us to go, then that's the place we need to go, and it will be a refuge for us. If God is saying, don't go there, and we go there, then that's not going to be good for us. Or at least we won't see all the purposes of God in him directing us down there, as he will later on, his own people, when he actually leads them to Egypt for 400 years, you see. He says, don't go down to Egypt. Settle down in the land I will point out to you. Stay, verse 3, in this land. Then I will be with you. Now notice here, beginning in verse 3, God is reassuring Isaac of four things. And these same four things, God would say to you and I today, whether it's in the midst of a crisis or whether it's just living our lives every day. First, my presence will be with you. God says, I will be with you. Isaac, I will be with you. Then notice, he says, I will bless you. So we have God's presence and we have God's blessing. God wants to bless his people. He wants to shower his favor upon his people. He wants to prosper them. And we're going to see that in this chapter. Then notice, he says, for I will give all these lands to you and to your descendants. God's provision. God says, I will provide everything you need, Isaac, while you're there. And I will fulfill the solemn promise I made to your father Abraham. God's faithfulness. God's presence. God's blessing. God's provision. God's faithfulness. All these things, God says, I will be for you. Do you see me, Isaac? Do you hear me? Will you respond to me in faith? And then God continues by again 
reminding Isaac of the promise that he made to his father Abraham. Again, saying, Isaac, I had to do this many times with your dad. I would come to him over and over again and reassure him, these are my promises. This is what I'm going to do. And guess what? God isn't tired of doing it. He continues to do it with his son Isaac. Again, why? Because God loves to reassure his people and because God knows we need reassurance all the time. We never get to a place as God's people, no matter how long we've been walking with God and how mature we are spiritually, we still are going to need God's reassurances in our life. And he knows that. Which is why, again, God always wants us to see him and hear him because when we see him and hear him, we are reminded of his presence, of his blessing, of his provision, and of his faithfulness, which should give us strength. So God says, verse 4, I will multiply your descendants so that they will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give them all these lands. All the nations of the earth will pronounce blessings on one another using the name of your descendants. Then notice verse 5, very important. All this will come to pass because Abraham, your father, obeyed me and kept my charge. Let's break this down. First of all, the word obeyed means to move to my voice. We've talked a lot about that in our study of Genesis and our study of Joshua. Moving to the voice of God. And God is saying, your father moved to my voice. Then he kept my charge. He was faithful to what I entrusted to him. Now, obviously, we know, we've studied the life of Abraham. He didn't do it 100% perfect all the time. He didn't always move to the voice of God. He didn't always, he wasn't always faithful to what God entrusted him. But God is saying, generally speaking, yes. And so even here, you see that God, God's not a harsh critic, a harsh judge. He's very lenient and gracious in the way he deals with us and looks at us. For those of you that, you know, are always grinding, thinking you've got to be perfect, you'll drive yourself crazy. And second of all, God doesn't work that way. God is simply looking for progress, never for perfection on this side of glory. But then notice this. He says, all this will come to pass because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Notice a very important thing before we leave verse 6. Isaac was the spiritual beneficiary of a godly parent. Did you catch that? God doesn't come to Isaac and say, Isaac, I'm doing all this because of you. No. He says, I'm doing this because of your dad. And this is a reminder to us that the blessings of God can pass from one generation to another. Because again, as we've learned throughout our studies in the Old Testament and even in the Psalms, part of the Old Testament, 
God is always about a bigger picture. He's always wanting to do something bigger than us. He's always reminding us that it's cross-generational and that you and I are just part of a link in the chain. And there were people who came before us and there will be people who come after us. And so you and I could be able to be encouraged and take heart with this information too because that means that if I follow the Lord, God will bless those who come after me. Not necessarily because of them, but because of me and what I leave behind as a spiritual legacy. And certainly we could even say that we, probably, many of us, were spiritually in a blessed, favorable position because of those who came before us. I know I can say that. And I don't thank God enough for that, that I came from a long line of godly people a spiritual heritage that was passed down. There were many, many preachers in my family ancestry that goes back a long ways. Very humbling, right? Now, maybe that's not the case with you. But here's the deal. You can start that legacy. You, you can be the one that starts it like Abraham did. And then see how God uses that to bless long after you and I are in glory. Now notice verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he replied, she is my sister. Oh my goodness, are we going down this road again? <laughs> Do you get the irony here? God is blessing Isaac because of the faithfulness of his father, but there were times where Abraham was really messing up like he did with his wife, Sarah, about lying about her as his sister. And guess who picked up that sin? The son. The son is making the same mistake that his dad did because not only are blessings passed from one generation to another, but sometimes our spiritual faults and weaknesses are also passed from one generation to another. Because here we see Isaac making the same mistake that his dad did, lying about the relationship with his wife out of fear. Because notice, just like Abraham, his father, he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He was being driven by fear, not by faith. And fear will cause us to make a lot of bad decisions in our life. That's why God wants us, his people, to always make choices and decisions driven by faith, not by fear. That's why Paul makes a very prominent statement in the book of Romans. Whatever is not of faith is what? Sin. Who? That's pretty clear cut. Paul says, if I as a Christian am doing something and it's not being fueled by faith in God, then it's sin. So he was driven by fear. For notice, he did something very dangerous too here. He thought to himself, we always get into trouble 
when we're drowning in our own thoughts instead of thinking godly thoughts and thinking the truth of God and thinking the revelation of God. When we're left to our own devices, it always gets us into trouble, which is why the Bible tells us I need to have my mind transformed. I need to fill my mind with the truth of God. As Paul says to the Philippians, I need to think on these things. I need to turn my mind and put it down on these things. I need to meditate on these things. I need to consider these things. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, David says. The men of this place, notice he reasoned, will kill me to get Rebecca because she's very beautiful. What's he doing? He's leaning on his own understanding. Something the book of Proverbs says we should not do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. He was failing here. After Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, verse 8, king of the Philistines, happened to look out a window and observed Isaac caressing or having a playful moment with his wife, Rebecca. And says, that ain't no sister-brother relationship there. <laughs> so Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she's my sister? Same thing happened to his father, Abraham, right? Isaac replied, because I thought someone might kill me to get her. All about me. I lie about my wife so that I can be spared. Same thing that Abraham did. Sort of a sobering thing, isn't it, parents and grandparents, to think that the good things can be passed to our children and grandchildren, but so can those bad parts of us be passed down too. Where we see those in our children and grandchildren too, and you see this here with Isaac and Abraham. Then Abimelech exclaimed, verse 10, what in the world have you done to us? One of the men might easily have had sexual relations with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech commanded all the people, whoever touches this man or his wife will surely be put to death. Now we move sort of to another chapter. Later on, as Isaac is there in Gerar, guess what? God's going to bless Isaac. Because guess what? The blessing of God is because of God's grace not because of Isaac's performance. It's because God is faithful. He's trustworthy to his promise. And he promised Abraham, I will bless you and I will bless your descendants. And it had nothing to do with their performance. Otherwise, they'd have been in trouble. I'm so thankful throughout my life that many of the times I enjoy the blessings of God, not because I earn them, deserve them, but simply because God is good to me and he blesses me because of his son, Jesus Christ. And we're all there. We're all there. Isaac planted in that land. He reaped in the same year a hundred times what he had sown because the Lord blessed or prospered him. Oh, to live under the blessing and prosperity of God, nothing like it. Instead of out there trying to sort of grab it for ourselves, we do our part, and certainly Isaac did that. He sowed the seed, but it was God 
who brought about the bounty and the abundance. And that's all God asks us to do. You sow, I'll bless. The man became wealthy. His influence continued to grow until he became very prominent or great in that land. In fact, he had so many sheep and cattle, such a great household of servants, that the Philistines became jealous or envious of him. You can imagine. They're struggling along. They're working hard. And they're not getting near as much of a return for all their hard work as Isaac is over here because Isaac is living under the blessing and prosperity of God. God's blessing the socks off of him. And they're becoming jealous and envious of it. That happens sometimes. Even today, even amongst God's people. There are some that God is blessing them and there are other Christians that look at them and begin to get jealous and envious. It's like, well, why aren't you blessing me, God, like you're blessing them? Happens, doesn't it? Because we're not seeing God and we're not hearing God. So verse 15, the Philistines took dirt and filled up or closed or shut all the wells that his father's servants, Abraham's servants, had dug back in the days of his father Abraham. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, leave us, get out of here, for you become more powerful than we are. And so we begin to see now that the first thing we came across in this chapter was that Isaac was struggling because of the crisis of one famine after another. So he moves, and now he's struggling again because of the conflict he's having with the pagans in this land, the unbelievers, if you will. And you and I can relate to that a little bit. It's hard sometimes to be a Christ follower in a world where there's not all Christ followers. We get that. There's going to at times come friction and tension and conflict. So what did Isaac do? Isaac left there and settled in the Gerar Valley. He wasn't looking for a fight. He was just looking to be at peace. So Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug back in the days of his father Abraham. He kept searching and digging for wells. Keep that in mind. God's people should always be digging wells. For the Philistines had stopped them after Abraham died. Isaac gave these wells the same names his father had given them. When Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well with fresh flowing water there, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water belongs to us. So Isaac named the well Isaac because they argued with him about it. His servants dug another well, but they quarreled over it too. So Isaac named it Sitna. Then he moved away from there and dug another well. They did not quarrel over it, so Isaac named it Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room, opened another door when all these close for us, and will prosper us in the land. Make us fruitful and bear fruit. Notice what Isaac is doing here. This is important. Many would say Isaac's being too passive here. He's not staying and fighting. But I think Isaac is just being very wise here. He's following the advice that Paul gives Christians in the book of Romans. As much as it lies within you, live peaceably with all men. He doesn't want to keep fighting. 
He wants to move to a place where they will leave him alone and he and his family and his servants can live in peace. And I think he has the faith to realize that if he just finds the right spot, as he did, God will make room for him and finally he'll be at peace. And he won't have this tension anymore. Yes, there's a time to stand up and fight, but many times there's a time just to go, you know what? This isn't worth it. This battle is not worth it. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save my battles for things that matter more than this. Now, I'm not saying wells weren't important. They were. But Isaac had the faith to believe that God would open up another well for him. And he did. He did. From there, Isaac, verse 23, went up to Beersheba. And guess what God does? The same thing he did in the famine. God comes to him in the midst now of this struggle of conflict and he wants to reassure him just as he did in the crisis of the famine. Because again, God loves to reassure his people. So the Lord appeared to him and says, do you see me, Isaac? I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid. Do not be driven or moved by fear. For I'm with you. I will bless you. I will multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. Same reassurance he gave him earlier, but here he comes again, because God never tires of reassuring his people, and I'm so glad of that. I need God's reassurance every day, every day. And then notice Isaac's response. His response is worship. He builds an altar there and worships the Lord. Altars were built as a response to God's favor. They were never built ahead of something that God did. They were always built in response to God's favor. And that's what worship is. Our worship is a response to the goodness and grace of God in our lives. Altars are a place of offering and sacrifice. And the word worship here is very important. It means to look to or to focus on the Lord. Again, to be able to see him in our worship, worship should always help us to look to, to look toward God, to focus or refocus on him. That's proper worship, being able to see him more than we see anything else. And the Bible says he pitched his tent there and the servants dug a well. Now Abimelech had come to him from Gerar along with these other guys. And Isaac asked them, why have you come to me now? You hate me. You sent me away from you earlier. And they replied, we could plainly see that the Lord is with you. Even pagans apprehend God's favor toward his people. Even they can see God's hands upon you. And so it's almost like we can't beat you, so can we join you? It's sort of like the same philosophy that Gamaliel had in, had in the book of Acts when he addressed the religious leaders of Israel when, he, when they're talking about, you know, getting rid of all the disciples of Jesus after the resurrection. And Gamaliel says, look, guys, if this movement is of men, it'll die out on its own. But if it's of God, then we don't really want to be fighting against God, right? And I think these guys, even again, though they weren't godly people, they were like, we clearly can see God is with you and we don't want to be on the other side of God, so we'd like to sort of join you here, if that's okay. Now, to give Isaac credit, 
Isaac could have been really ugly here and said, no. First of all, you shut up all my wells. You, you made it hard for me. Uh, he could have been very unforgiving. He could have been very ungracious. He could have treated them very hard and very harshly and said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do this. But he didn't. He didn't. He extended grace to them. They wanted to make a treaty, and guess what Isaac did? Verse 30, Isaac held a feast for them, and they celebrated. Early in the morning, the men made a treaty with each other, and Isaac sent them off, and they separated on good terms. And notice, it is no coincidence that on the very day Isaac extended grace to others, his servants found water. If you know the story of our church, you know that we could say the same thing. That as soon as we as leaders agreed to put a roof on Pastor Ola's Chea's church in Mexicali, guess what opened up for us this property? When God sees his people being gracious to others, God will open up the doors of heaven and bless his people too. We can never outgive God. And they said, we dug and we found water. So verse 33, he named it Sheba. That is why the name of the city has been Beersheba to this day. And by the way, Beersheba plays a prominent role in the Bible. It is a point of departure for many spiritual journeys. In fact, Abraham, Hagar, Jacob, and Elijah all experienced life-changing encounters with God at Beersheba. Why? Because God was there and because there was a well there. Now, the rest of the chapter talks about the bad choices Esau makes, and we'll come back to that next week. But I want to talk for a moment about the importance of digging wells. And I want to apply that in a real practical, relevant way to our lives. Wells were lifelines in this day and age and in this area of the world. They lived in a very desert, arid climate, just like you and I do. And without water, people die. So these oasises, these places where they could find water and dig these wells were absolutely essential to life. They also were landmarks for rest and refreshment as people journeyed from one city to another, one town to another, one geographical location to another. To know where these places existed was like a gas station on a long, deserted highway. Very important. And you see then the importance of why everywhere they went, they had to make sure that they could find a well. Because for them, it was life, but it was primarily physical life. But then God takes this beautiful picture of a physical well and he applies it to us spiritually. And he says to us in the New Testament that we as God's people need to make sure that we have opened up spiritual wells in our life. 
spiritual lifelines, spiritual places or people that provide for us rest and refuge and refreshment so that we have places or people to go to in our life as well. Who or what are our wells? Well, hopefully, for all of us here, one of those wells is this church. That's part of the reason why I named it the Oasis, so that it would be a place where God's people could come and be refreshed and find living water and, and be strengthened and encouraged. But we need other places maybe where we can go at times and say, that's my spiritual well. That's where I can go and get draw water from. Or this person, this relationship that I have in my life, they're, they're somebody that I can go to and they're very resourceful. They don't drain me. They, they build into my life and they give me life and they give me water spiritually and all of that. We all need to make sure that we have wells in our life. But the ultimate well, and I'll close with this, if you turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 4, the ultimate well has been supplied to us the moment we became a Christian. And the ultimate well is something that all Christians have because the ultimate well that we can always draw from anytime, any place, anywhere is the person of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Notice what Jesus says in John 14, or John 4, excuse me, verses 13 and 14. Talking to the woman at the well, right? Jesus replied, everyone who drinks some of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks some of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, but the water that I will give him will become in him or in her a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying every Christian has literally a well within us, a spiritual fountain that can always supply us all that we need throughout our life. Yes. We need to keep digging for other wells and making sure that we keep wells open in our life, other places, other people. But God will always point us back to the ultimate well. And that is the person and presence of the Holy Spirit who becomes that fountain of living water that literally is our spring inside of us all the time. And God is saying to us, draw from the well. And that's why, as Christians, we should always be living from the overflow of how the person of God is pouring into us through the inner man. Wells are going to play a significant part throughout our study of God's Word because they were essential. You couldn't live without them. And guess what? 
you and I need those wells too. Maybe not literal physical wells, but we need the spiritual wells that God provides for us. And hopefully we can grow to a point where we can be a well of refreshment and rest and refuge for others as well. God, we thank you tonight for the time we've had to worship you and the time we've had in your word. We pray, God, that we would all be encouraged tonight because we can relate with Isaac, who had struggles in his life, struggles that were crises and struggles of conflict. And yet every time, God, in the crisis or in the conflict, you were faithful to come to your servant Isaac and to reassure him. And God, you do the same thing with your people today. Whether we're in the midst of crisis or conflict, God, you are always faithful to come to us in the midst of our crisis and conflict and appear to us because you want us to see you and you speak to us because you want us to hear you and to hear your promises and your reassuring words to us. God, thank you for being such an amazing God that is with us every step of the way. Just as you promised Isaac, you promise us your presence, your blessing, your provision, and your faithfulness. God, may those things encourage us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here tonight. We'll see you next week.